first and foremost, man, graduates, congratulations again. That was so incredible. We're so proud of you as a whole church. We're so grateful that we, uh, we're a church family that raises our kids together, right? And seeing you guys up on stage, I, I was actually getting like emotional thinking about my two boys graduating one day. And so I'm just really proud of y'all. Aaron Channer, congratulations on getting baptized on Wednesday, man. That was incredible. Love it. So excited for uh, your whole family and the Hawkins family. Can't wait for that in a little bit, bro. But, um, and I just want to give an open invite to all the graduates. The campus ministry would love to have you. No matter where you're at in your faith, no matter where you're at in your journey, we'd love to have you. It's a great place to grow in your faith. It's a great place for community, especially for you guys around Georgia State and Kennesaw and Georgia Tech. There's cool people on campus that love Jesus. I'd love to connect with you guys. So... There you go. So we're going to continue in our series today about what is truth. What is truth? It's our apologetic series. You know, we, we talked for three weeks on the resurrection, coming off of Easter and why we believe what we believe and all that kind of stuff. And we decided, you know what, instead of just assuming that all of our faith is in the perfect place, why don't we actually do a series talking about why we believe in this and talking about apologetics. And so we're, we're diving through this, we're, and what we're saying is, why do we believe the Christian faith is true? Not that it's a relative truth for me and you have your relative truth. Not that it's just good morality and if you follow this, you'll have a good lifestyle, or that it just makes sense. But why is the Christian faith true? Why is it an absolute truth? And last week, Jeff started for us talking about the empty tomb with the resurrection and why we can believe in that. And today we're talking about, is the Bible reliable? Because the Bible makes some huge claims and that, that there's a God that created the universe that loves us and wants to walk with us in his kingdom. And if that is true, my friends, it has massive implications. So today we're talking about, can we trust the Bible? Is it reliable or is it not? And before we start, I want to ask, how would you answer this question? You know, so if anyone wants to raise their hand, no, I'm just playing. <laughs> how would you answer that? Somebody asks, can, why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you think it's true? Is it reliable? Like, why, why should I follow it? Are you prepared to answer that question? Because like Jeff talked about last week, in 1 Peter, Peter calls us to be prepared to answer. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Have you thought it through? Have you intentionally dug and figured out why you believe and how, are you prepared? I'm the, it's a command in the Bible to be prepared, that we need to be able to stand on why we believe what we believe. You know, right now in, in our household, Camden has entered the questioning phase, and he's the why monster, all right? Even on the way here, I don't, I don't even remember what it was. It was Dad, I, I kind of zoned out for a second, and he, start, he was starting his why train, and if you don't answer him asking why, he only gets louder. So it was, Daddy, why, why, why? Dad, why? And I was like, oh, Cam, I'm sorry. What did you say again? It's just why everything. Earlier this week uh, or, or last week, he asked us, we weren't prepared. He said, what's inside a carrot? And I was like, well, my son, inside a carrot is a, I don't know. 
more carrot? <laughs> Sometimes we're not prepared at all to answer. Other times we are. Are you prepared to answer why you believe in the scriptures? Why is it true? Why do you believe? Why do you trust in it? Why is it reliable? You know, and um, if, if we continue here in our series, we actually got three goals, all right, for this series on what is truth. Our, our first goal is to tr strengthen your faith no matter where you are. Whether it's your first time here and you're new to the faith or whether you've been here for decades, we want to strengthen your faith. The second goal is to equip you with tools to use in conversations about faith. And this can be with someone that you're maybe reaching out to or a friend that isn't a Christian yet and you're trying to help them to have faith. Or it could be for another disciple, one of your friends that has real questions about the Bible that over time they start asking. Because if we truly believe the Bible is the Word of God, then when our friends start questioning it, we want to walk right there with them to help them through those questions. And number three, our goal is to inspire you to wrestle with why you believe what you believe and go after learning to be prepared to answer. Look, guys, four, four, a four-week series on apologetics isn't going to answer all the questions that's going to come out to you. At some point, you have to decide this is important enough for me to take my time to invest and figure out why I believe in it. At some point, you got to build a conviction to whether it's to do research online or to study through the scriptures or pick up an apologetics book or listen to debates so that we can be ambassadors when our friends ask questions. Amen? So is the Bible reliable? You know, that word reliable, as we start out today, Peter uses in, uh, in 2 Peter, I got, whenever you have something on a slide that's wrong and you preach, just in case it's ever you, people will tell you it's wrong, just so you know, all right? This is actually supposed to be 2 Peter, all right? Just so you guys know. Okay, there you go. We also have prophetic message as something completely reliable, says Peter. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says the Scriptures are completely reliable. And there is an argument to be made that if this is true, like that it's, it's God is the writer and then the humans were the pen, that the Holy Spirit was writing through them, then wouldn't God make sure his scriptures stayed reliable to the original text? Like wouldn't, he, wouldn't the Holy Spirit protect it and make sure that fake stuff wasn't brought in or stuff wasn't taken out? Well, of course it would. Of course the Spirit would. But to believe that, you already have to come from a place of faith. And if you're someone here this morning that is questioning and trying to come to faith, you might say, that doesn't really work for me. I know it didn't work for me when I was in that journey. So I was an atheist or an agnostic for about six years. And so my, my dad and my family was in our fellowship at churches, right? They were in ministry here in Atlanta. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, my parents got out of ministry. When I was in eighth grade, my dad became an atheist. And then so all from high school and my first two years at Georgia Tech, uh, I didn't believe in God. And sometimes I, I would say, well, no one can ever figure out anyways. Maybe I would say I was an agnostic. But I didn't go to church for like six years. And during that time, the, the only time I went to church is the pretty girl I like went to church. Then I became Christian real quick. <laughs> but besides that, I, I wanted nothing. I didn't believe in it. I believed in science. I was an engineer. I was at Tech. I said science, not faith, right? And so when God started pulling 
me back into his heart, I had questions. And I had questions that I was so grateful that the ministry was willing to go down that rabbit hole. Instead of shunning me for my questions, they welcomed my questions. Now, I do want to say that if you're struggling with certain parts of your faith, North River is a great place to question things. It's a great place to ask questions and to have people walk with you through your questions. So today, that's how we're going to go about this, is I want to ask three questions, and we're going to dive through it together. So is the Bible reliable? We're going to, we're going to ask three questions. One, how is the New Testament put together? Two, can we trust the accuracy of the Scriptures? And then three, what's the big deal about prophecies? And so today, it's more of a teaching, all right? Welcome to, uh, you know, uh, North River 101. You know what I'm saying? It's been a while since you've been in college. I'm Professor Massey today, all right? And we're going to go down this. Is that cool with you guys? Take out your pen and paper. Yeah, all that. All right, here we go. So number one, we're starting with how was the New Testament put together? For me, this was extremely helpful. Not that it made me have faith, but it took out a lot of my doubt about how it was put together. Um, so sometimes, I don't know for you, for me, before I learned all this, I thought it might look a little something like this, like Gandalf, an old dude going to some dusty library. Hey, this looked like it'd be from the Word of God. What do you think? Like, and just kind of putting the pieces together a thousand years later, not even close, and it's just kind of guessing, well, that sounds true. I don't know, if, at certain points I believe that. And yet, that couldn't be more far from the truth about how the New Testament was put together. It was so much more put together in real time with real people. If you look at the New Testament, uh, all the books are written by the apostles or by the apostles' associates. So people that walked intimately with the apostles and recorded things for them. So it came from the people that spent time with Jesus. And they were written to specific people in specific, specific places in specific times. There's literally hundreds across the Bible, hundreds of places, events, and people that you can fact check with history to see that it is accurate. But if we kind of dive in and take a look about how the New Testament was put together, let's say that you were a disciple in the church in Rome. And maybe a Priscilla and Aquila studied the Bible with you, and you're a Roman, you're studying the Bible there. And, then, and so you're out there in Rome, and, and then uh, Mark was a close associate with Peter. And so he recorded the gospel from Peter's perspective for the church in Rome. And so Rome gets this gospel, the gospel of Mark from Peter, and you're sitting there and you're soaking it up, and y'all read it like every single Sunday, but you're reading about all these other apostles, and you're hearing about them, and maybe you're getting some of the oral tradition, but you want something written too so that you can read it, that you can study it, and you, you can't get on, you know, uh, James and John's YouTube channel. You can't go look up the, the Jerusalem Church of Christ podcasts. Like, you, how do, but you want to hear the other apostles. So what do you do? So you hear about Paul writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Oh, the apostle Paul wrote something to Philippi. We got to send somebody. But when we send someone, why don't we give them what we got? And so they would, they would take their leading scholar and they would copy down the gospel of Mark. And they would take that with them. They would go to Philippi, and then they would give Philipp, the Philippian church that copy of Mark. And then they would take this letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote, and they would copy that down. And then they would take that back to Rome. And so then after that journey, then the church in Rome would have the book of Mark and the book of Philippians. And then the church in Philippi would have the book of Mark and the book of Philippians. You guys following me? 
Now, continuing from there, then the church in Corinth goes, oh, man, I heard Philippi just got this gospel of Mark, and man, you know, they just got something from Paul. We got two of Paul's letters, too. We got First and Second Corinthians. That was written to the church in Corinth. So why don't we make copies of those, and then we'll take them up to Philippi. We'll all make copies of our different letters so that we can all share that. And then after that journey, then the church in Philippi and the church in Corinth will each have those four books or those four letters. You guys following? So this was actively happening like concurrently with the writings. Like this just happened organically because the disciples wanted to hear from the apostles. They wanted to hear from the people that were with Jesus. And so actually this, this was happening in just a couple generations in the 100s. So all the New Testament was written in that first century before 100 AD, right? And then in the 100s, just a generation or two later, there's already the four gospels circling together as a packet amongst the churches. There's already all the epistles, Paul's letters circling and packets across all the churches. And then by the end of that, sec- that um, by the end of the 100s, that second century, they were already using terms like the New Testament or the New Covenant, and all the books were already basically compiled, except maybe like Revelation, and they were circling amongst the churches. Now, it wasn't until, now, what you might have heard, like in other times, it wasn't until the 300s that an official council came together and put a rubber stamp on, like this is what we're going to consider the Bible officially, but that it had already been viewed that way for about 200 years. You guys following? Professor Matthew, shoot you straight, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Next question. Well, if we know how the New Testament was put together, can we really trust the accuracy of the Scriptures? Because it's just one person hand-copying another person's handwriting. There's no Control-C, Control-V. There's no, like, I'm just going to fax it. Like, human error wouldn't—can we trust it? That is a real and honest question. Well, as we talk about the accuracy of the Scriptures, first I want to zoom out again to the whole Bible, all right? There's 40 authors that write the Bible. It's not just one book, it's a library. There's 40 authors in that library. And they wrote over a course of a thousand years in three different languages. And yet they all have a unified message. That to me builds my faith. It's hard for me to have a unified message over the course of a year, much less a thousand years and 40 authors in three languages, shows the spirit behind it. But let's ask this question. Can we trust the accuracy of the scriptures? Well, another place in Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters. Speaking of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So this is extremely important in our question that we're asking right now. Why? Because the letters were compiled and circulated during the time of the apostles. So Peter was reading Paul's letters. So if Paul said anything crazy, if Paul said anything that Peter didn't hear personally from Jesus, he would have go, time out, that's not true. And then the same thing with Peter's letters, or Paul would have been reading his letters. And so if, if, if what was getting circulating wasn't what they originally wrote, they would have stopped it immediately and said, I didn't write that. And so those, that first period of time when they were first getting copied, the apostles themselves would have been able to testify that's actually what they wrote down. 
And it is of, of, of big uh, importance that Peter, even, even during the time period of, of this writing, viewed Paul's writings as scripture. So he refers to what Paul wrote and the other scriptures, referring to that the first thing was referencing Paul's writings or scriptures also. It's extremely significant to how Peter and the people that viewed uh, and how they viewed the writings. Now, but it is real is that these were manuscripts, okay? Ma what a manuscript means is that it's something that was, that was copied down by hand. And so biblical manuscripts, there's a lot of them. There's 25,000 biblical manuscripts that are hand, co hand copies of the Bible. 5,800 of them are written in Greek. That was the original uh, written language that it was written in. Actually, what you see right here is this is the oldest manuscript that we have. It's called P52, Papyrus 52. It's a fragment of the book of John. And it comes from the, the early 100s, just a few decades after it would have been originally written. These other two, um, these other two pictures right here are, they're called codexes. A codex is a collection of books. They're the first two whole New Testaments that we have, and they come from the 300s. But this number, 25,000 biblical manuscripts, is, is ginormous. And that's important. They're actually the... The next ancient document with the most copies is Homer's Iliad, and it only has 600 documents or 600 manuscripts. Why is that so important? Well, because all these manuscripts can be cross-referenced to make sure that what we're, what we're translating is accurate. The occasional errors in, in human copying, normally matters of spelling variation or advertent uh, copying mistakes like Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, they don't change or undermine the accuracy of the text. And since there's so many manuscripts anyways, like I was just saying, the science of textual criticism allows scholars to reestablish the original text with an extremely high degree of confidence. Are you guys following me? These texts also let us uh, go back to close to the original writing. And, and so if, if in your mind you think that our New Testament Bible, like what you hold in your hand or what you see in your phone, is, is copied from something that was written a thousand years after the original, that's not true. They go back to the oldest manuscripts possible, just a couple generations, just a few copies after to get our text we have today. And they compile all of them to see Man, is, is what we're giving to people now really true? But as we talk about manuscripts, I do think it's helpful to talk about who was writing it, who was copying it, and who was distributing it. Because I want you to think for a second. If back in our original kind of uh, idea, if you're a disciple in Rome, and you're part of the church in Rome, and you're reading about Jesus from the, the gospel of Mark that Peter gave you guys, and about how Jesus was crucified and persecuted for his faith, and you're saying, I want to follow that guy and your church is following that guy, and you actually have friends or family members that have been crucified, maybe not crucified, but, but persecuted and killed for their own faith. And you're deciding to, to copy the Gospel of Mark, to take it to a different church, to give them that copy, to copy whatever letter they have to go back to Rome. And why would you, what, 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 what's the big deal about that? Well, you're literally risking your life because you're carrying with you evidence of the faith that you have. So if you get caught, you can lose your life. Why would you do that? Because you believe in it so much. And if you're that copyist, if you're that scholar, that leader that's copying, and you're willing to risk your life for it, 
wouldn't you also take extreme measure to copy it as best you can to bring it back to your friends back home that are willing to die for it also? They're literally risking their lives for this. This isn't just random things happening, but people that say, I'm willing to risk my life to hear more from the apostles. But the biggest, the biggest finding over the last uh, 150 years when it comes to biblical accuracy that we have found archaeologically has been the Dead Sea Scrolls, all right? Who's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Most of us. Who can explain the Dead Sea Scrolls and why it's important? A couple of us, all right? So you're going to hear it today, all right? Hopefully I can do it in a way that you can take with you and that it's packageable. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls is the most significant finding in the, over in the uh, 20th century uh, biblically. So uh, it, it was found in the 1940s near the Dead Sea, by the Dead Sea. It, uh, it's a very dry region close to Jerusalem. And it's significant because they found dozens and dozens of manuscripts uh, and when you put them together, partial or complete biblical texts from every book of the Old Testament except Esther was found. So we found an entire Old Testament when you put them all together. And of, of, uh, of significance is when it was written. So it was written originally at 100 BC. Now that's really important. I don't know if you know why it's important, but if you ask me, I'll tell you. Oh, thanks for asking, all right? Why is it important? Okay, let's keep going. So right here's a little timeline. Up, up top is the Greek. You can't see that. Okay, up top is the Greek with the New Testament. The, those codexes, that is references, the one that you saw earlier. The bottom's the Hebrew talking about the Old Testament. So the, um, the, our oldest manuscript before the Dead Sea Scrolls was called the Cairo Codex. It was written at 895 A.D., that's 1,500 years after the Old Testament was originally written. And so while we, with our Bibles today, we based it off our oldest manuscript, which is the Cairo Codex, but we had to trust that the 1,500 years from when the Old Testament was originally written and the copies all the way to the Cairo Codex, we had to trust that nothing got changed. Now, we do trust our God can do that, but skeptics like me, when I was coming to faith, that was a big thing I could nitpick apart and I could, that I could question. Why are the Dead Sea Scrolls so important? Because they were written in 100 BC. They're literally written a thousand years before our previous oldest Old Testament. And so it, it went back a thousand years worth of copying. And then when you take the Dead Sea Scrolls, then you took the Cairo Codex, there's a thousand years of copying we don't have in between, and you compared them. There was no change. Over a thousand year period, there was an accurate transmission as from the copiers. It's just blow away incredible. Now, that doesn't 100% mean that the 500 years from when the original uh, Old Testament was written to the Dead Sea Scrolls, that doesn't 100% mean that there means there's no, uh, you know, no errors. But it gives us a lot more confidence of the reliability that if they could, if they could accurately copy for a thousand years then we can trust that they're accurately copying for 500 years before that. You guys following me? It's powerful. It is powerful and so important to the people that question. And we want to be able to talk to people about this. This is great evidence to support our confidence in the reliability of scriptures. Now, our last question that we're going to talk about at the end of our time, zooming all the way back out, is the Bible reliable? We're going to ask, what's the big deal about prophecies? 
Okay, so there's two types of prophecy in the Bible. One of them is the predictive prophecy. It's a prediction of something that's going to happen, right? Now, there's these messianic prophecies that they're predictions about the future Messiah. They're predictions about the future Christ, the anointed one. They're called messianic prophecies. So uh, this finding in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're going to go back to this, is so crucial when it comes to us trusting this. Because before the Dead Sea Scrolls, The Cairo Codex, it was our oldest known manuscript of the Old Testament, which means it was our oldest known Old Testament that had the prophecies about Jesus. And it was written like 800 years after Jesus. So to the skeptic like me, you're saying, I have to trust that the prophecy that was copied 800 years after Jesus, that nobody changed that after Jesus just to make sure it fit. You follow me? Like no one went back, to, oh, well, Jesus didn't really, he fulfilled this one, leave it in there. Well, he didn't fulfill this one, so let's just change the wording a little bit, or let's take it out so that we can help people believe. I, 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 would, I question that. But what the Dead Sea Scrolls does, is the Dead Sea Scrolls eliminates that question because it was copied down before Jesus was born. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are circa 100 B.C. They were written from 200 B.C. to 100 A.D. But they're, so it's 100 years before Jesus was born. We have, that's when the prophecies were written. And so they weren't changed. So if Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, he was, he was uh, fulfilling predictions that were made, not just that were copied later, but literally written down that we have copies of, that we have the literal thing of 100 years before he was born. It's incredible. It's so incredible. So what are some of these messianic prophecies? You know, there's ones about how he was born, that, he, that a virgin would give birth to him. There's, there's prophecies about where he was born, that he was born in Bethlehem. There's other prophecies about that his ministry would be in Galilee, which is kind of an unknown region during that time. There's even prophecies about how he would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. Even the smallest prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Amen, church? Now, the kind of the creme de la creme of prophecy about Christ is Isaiah 52, 14 to the end of chapter Isaiah 53. And that's where you read it and just the prophecy just oozes out of it. It's incredible. Some of my favorite from that uh, passage is Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions. And we know when Jesus was on a cross, he was pierced by a spear. In Isaiah 53, 7, he says, He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Do you remember the court scenes with Jesus? When he was before the Sanhedrin, or when he was before Pilate, and he was silent, and he didn't defend himself. He fulfilled this prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 12, uh, it reads, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered um, with the transgressors. Do you remember who was uh, crucified next to Jesus? He had a sinner on his right and a sinner on his left, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus fulfilled every prophecy. Amen, church? There's uh, There's this scholar named Peter Stoner that I want to talk about to close out the service. And he's, a pas- he's passionate about prophecy. He's a chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. Basically, you can trust what he's saying, all right? And what he did is he took a, a group of researching students, and they took eight specific prophecies about Jesus and calculated conservative probabilities for each being fulfilled. So they didn't take all of the dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies. They just took eight. 
And they said, what are the probabilities of it being fulfilled in a person? And then they combined those eight, right? And this is the number they came up with for just eight prophecies. The prospect that anyone would satisfy all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17. Just eight of them. That's how unlikely, improbable, impossible it is. And to put that into perspective, he wrote this in... um, He wrote this in Science Speaks magazine as he was talking about this research. Uh, He said, let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them up and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting a right ticket is one in 10. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17, that number right there, 10 to the 17 silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the entire state two feet deep. Now we take one of those silver dollars and we mark it with a red X. Then we put it back in and we shuffle it all up. And then we blindfold a man. And we tell him that he can walk anywhere that he wants to across the entire state and he needs to reach down, pick up a silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having all of them come true in any one man from their day to present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. But they weren't using their own wisdom, were they, church? The Spirit was predicting a Messiah through them. The Spirit was saying a man was going to come like this and like this, and he was going to do this, and he was going to be born here, and he was going to die like this. And the Spirit knew it was coming giving us great confidence in the reliability of the scriptures, no matter how unlikely, no matter how improbable the Bible is reliable. We've walked through today these questions. We've talked about how the New Testament was put together. We've talked about, man, yes, we can trust in the accuracy of the scriptures. And we've talked about, man, there's a giant deal about prophecies. And I want to encourage you to not let it stay here. Take time this week. Study out some of your favorite prophecies. Read Isaiah 52 and 53. Or jump on Delga Shikobi website or, or type in uh, great apologetic arguments to dive in and dig some or do some research on New Testament and how it was put together. Let us be prepared, church. Let us be prepared to answer when people ask, to have, have a faith that has been questioned and that reasonable people can have a reasonable faith. Amen? We're going to pray now for communion. And as we just looked at with the prophecies, it, we're, we're going to remember today not just how Jesus went through the cross at present time when he died, but God and Jesus actually were prophesying it and knowing what's coming throughout the entire Old Testament. And it was that decision that gave us a chance to talk about these things. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time where we can uh, just dig in, God, and, and, and kind of jump into the classroom and, and really talk about how your word is reliable. God, thank you for giving us your word, and thank you for letting us be able to study and ask questions. Thank you that you can withstand our questions. Father, I pray that you increase the faith of every single person that can hear my voice. Help us to believe that the Bible is more reliable. And thank you, God, for deciding in advance that you would let your son die for us and deciding and confirming it with prophecy that you were going to let this happen. And God, I pray we can remember now how the Jesus that died for us, we can believe in. that he, It's an absolute truth that he died, was buried, and was raised for our sins. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.